Continuing our study in Revelation 11, Pastor Phil explains that Satan also seeks to lead us away from taking up the cross in our lives as well. Let's join Pastor Phil now for today's teaching. I mean, there's all kinds of ways people follow the devil, right? Whether they're Satan worshipers or don't even realize they're following the devil, but it's all the same entrapment to get you to bypass the cross, to satisfy your own desires directly. In trying to do that, you realize that no matter how much you acquire that this world has, it may satisfy for a time and it leaves you thirsty for more. But if we come to Jesus and die to self and receive him as Lord and Savior, we drink of the living water that only he can give. And you know what? We never thirst again. And as Peter said, Lord, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. This world has nothing in it that I desire anymore. Because I know that nothing in this world can satisfy me like Jesus can. And so he tried to get Jesus to bypass the cross, of course, and praise the Lord. Jesus refused. He went to the cross and died for us on the third day, rose again. And he then ascended back to his father 40 days later, where he was seated at the father's right hand. And while in heaven, he asked the father to give him what the father promised to give him, which were the kingdoms of this world. You can read about that in Psalm 2, verses 4 through 9. And the Father gave to the Son the kingdoms of this world. And now He is going to come back someday to judge the living and the dead and to establish His kingdom where He's going to reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. And all those who go to the cross now are going to come back and reign with Him. All those who truly receive Him. Not for what He gives. Not to get something out of Him, but simply to give Him their life, which is the heart of a true believer. All those who die now, as Jesus said, if you seek to gain your life now, you'll lose it forever. If you seek to lose your life now for my sake, you'll find it forever. So we go to the cross, we die now to live for God, and someday we come back and we do reign with him forever. Now, I want you to uh, be careful of something. It should be noted that although the seventh trumpet here is the last in a sequence of seven trumpet judgments. Do not confuse this last trumpet here with the one that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, where Paul said, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What's he talking about? The rapture, right? And because some people confuse this final trumpet judgment with the last trump of God in 1 Corinthians 15, they believe that is right here in chapter 11 is where the rapture happens. That's what post, that's what mid-trib rapture belief is all about. They're confusing 
the final trumpet judgment with the last trump that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Look, every Jew knew that trumpets were used for all kinds of purposes uh, in the life of Israel. You had trumpets that were sounded to call an assembly. You had trumpets that were sounded to call people to war. You had trumpets that were sounded to coronate a king. There were all kinds of things that were trumpets were used for. So we can't just read this and assume something. First of all, the trumpet that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 that sounds the rapture, that's a, an assembly, right? We're assembling in the air to meet the Lord who is coming for us. It's important that we understand, though, that that trumpet is just momentary, right? And it's just going to last long enough for us to be transformed in a, in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. This trumpet, the last trumpet judgment, is a trumpet of judgment, not to call an assembly, but to call for judgment upon the earth. The last trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15, to call the saints to the Lord in the air. This trumpet calls the final judgments upon the Christ rejectors here on the earth. Different thing altogether, right? This trumpet is not going to last a moment for just a twinkling of an eye. This one is going to unleash wave after wave of judgment that's going to carry us right on through into the millennial kingdom. They're different trumpets. Don't get them confused. I know a lot of people read this and go, well, here, this is where the rapture is because it's the last trumpet. Didn't Paul say at the last trump, you know, we shall all be you know, caught up to meet the Lord in the air? Uh, he did, but that was a different trumpet. If you want to compare this trumpet to something, don't go to 1 Corinthians 15. Go to Joel 2. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Here's what it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness, gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. We read on, it's a day of judgment. So that's the trumpet. If you want to compare trumpets with this one, go to Joel 2, not 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in Verse 16, it says, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. The elders, it says, left their thrones. Who are the 24 elders? What do they represent? The church. The church. We've already talked about this in detail in chapter 4. So if you're interested in it, you can get the CD for that. But these 24 elders represent the church. Again, they're on thrones, even as Jesus promised his church that we would reign with him on thrones. At this point, though, we see how they left their thrones and prostrated themselves before the Lord to worship him before his throne. And they gave thanks for three special blessings. First of all, that Christ reigns supremely, which is what verse 17 talks about. That he judges righteously, verse 18, and that he rewards graciously, also verse 18. Verse 17 says, as they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The Greek is actually, and have begun to reign. Even before he comes down to earth to take his throne on the earth, Jesus Christ is already beginning to reign by judging the Antichrist and the devil and his kingdom on the earth. He is the God of this world. 
And Jesus is judging the world in preparation for his coming back and taking his rightful place on the throne of Jerusalem to judge and rule over the whole world. Now, verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Someone has said in verse 18, we have kind of a table of contents for the remainder of the book of Revelation. These events did not do not take place when the seventh trumpet is sounded. We're going to continue on reading how in chapter 15 and especially 16 we see uh, how the bowls are begin, beginning to be poured out on the earth. Uh, it's just that when this seventh trumpet sounds, it sets in motion the final events. And those events are absolutely sure. That's why they're talked about in the past tense. But it's kind of like this verse 18 kind of gives us like a table of contents of what is coming. The events that are going to take us right into now the millennial kingdom. Let's look at verse 18 because it's, it's a very confusing and even controversial verse. I want to just kind of uh, take it apart a little bit. First of all, it says the nations were angry. Why were the nations angry? Well, quite honestly, because they, didn't want, they don't want God or his Christ reigning over them. You know, making the rules, telling them how to live their lives. This is what unsaved man is always hated. To relinquish control of his life, to turn it over to God. He wants to be God. He wants to be in control. And at this point, because the Antichrist has lied to the people of this earth, telling them that if they follow him, they will enter into this utopia, this this new age, which for a while looks right, looks good, doesn't it? But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, right? Like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they won't escape. But for a while, this guy looks like he's coming through on his promise. The world has got peace. It's all united under a one-world government, a one-world religion. Oh, it's awesome. But here comes the two witnesses telling people, don't buy into this lie. I mean, things look good now. We're warning you. If you don't repent, judgment is coming. And they heard that for three and a half years until finally the Antichrist killed them, which really made him look like a, you talk about a, a rock star status. Uh, when he killed these two witnesses that were, that were hassling everybody, boy, he really, really took, you know, top billing in people's minds. But quite honestly, the nations were angry at the thought that Christ is coming back to take control and to reign And you know what? If you're going to be a member of his kingdom on the earth, you better right now bow the knee to his lordship because it's all about his lordship throughout eternity. If you're not willing to bow the knee and to live for him and his will and not your own, you can't be a part of this kingdom. And that's what people of this world don't want to hear. They want to have their cake and eat it too, you might say. They want to be in control, do whatever they want, be blessed without any but he else telling them how they are to live their lives. The people of this world that follow the Antichrist, you know, their, their anthem, you might say, is uh, Henley's uh, poem Invictus, you know. It matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the kind of mentality we see today. And it's going to be very prevalent during this period. Even though many are going to get saved, 
The vast majority will not. They will harden their hearts, and it will get worse, progressively worse, as time goes on. We'll see that in a moment. But the verb translated here in verse 18, the nations, it says, were angry. That's a Greek word that means a deep-seated, ongoing hostility. Don't misunderstand. This is not a momentary emotional fit of temper. This is something that has been burning in the heart of man for many, many centuries. And this generation is just manifesting it, you know, in their day. This is that slow-burning hostility towards God where man says, I will not have God rule over me. He's not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. One author said they want to worship and serve the creature instead of the Creator. Like adolescent children, the nations want to cast off all restraint, and God will permit it for a time. This will result in another Babylon, man's last attempt to build his utopia, a heaven on earth. Note the change in attitude shown by the nations of the world. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, the nations ruthlessly take over Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 9, they rejoice at the death of the two witnesses. But now they are angry. Their arrogance and joy did not last very long. This belligerent attitude will finally cause the nations to unite to fight God at the great battle of Armageddon, end quote. And that's exactly what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 2. Why don't you turn there? In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, we read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord... And against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Again, the world does not want God reigning. They don't want Christ on the throne. And they're so deceived by the Antichrist, they actually think they can go to war against God. We'll read about this in chapter 13. It says, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. Now, there are two Greek words for wrath. The first one is thumos, and it means rage, a passionate anger. The second is orge, which is used here, by the way, and it means indignation, a settled attitude of wrath. What does that mean? It simply means this. God is not some kind of a divine hothead. God is not given to fits of anger like we are prone to, you know, somebody cuts us off and right away, woof, we just explode with, with rage, right? That's not the word that's used of God. God's anger is not like it just explodes like he's some kind of a hothead, you know, and loses it every once in a while. His anger is orge. What does that mean? It's a slow-burning anger towards sin that has been going on for centuries and building and building and building. And what has restrained it is His grace and love. How that God loves the people of this world and is giving them time to repent so that they don't have to be judged. Now, the Bible says at one point the cup of His indignation is going to be full. I mean, God is going to reach his limit, and his judgment is going to be poured out full strength. Turn to Romans chapter 2, because Paul talks about this. In Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul said, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, 
you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Paul is telling us that although God's anger burns hot against sin, God is so merciful, so long-suffering and patient, he is showing love and grace to people in an effort to get them to repent and come to him for forgiveness, that he might not have to judge them. You know, somebody has said that grace can be very bad or very good. What does that mean? Well, somebody else said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And here's the deal. If you're living your life in sin, but God every day is showing you mercy, showing you grace, trying to get you to come to him, that he might forgive you. If one day you turn your heart over to Christ, and you know what? God's grace was a wonderful thing, very positive thing in your life. It brought you to Christ, right? However, every day that you reject Christ, you're storing up more and more judgment because every day you rebel against God and commit sin, those sins are going into the ledger. That ledger is going to determine the weight of punishment you're going to receive in hell. So the longer you wait to come to Christ, I mean, if you, if you accept Christ at 95, well, praise God. If you don't, you're in big trouble. You've got 95 years of sin that God was trying to get you to turn from. And you're just storing up wrath in the day of judgment and wrath. You know, Peter reminds us the Lord is not slack concerning His promise of some kind of slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You would think as we've been reading these judgments of God, and they're only going to get worse from this point on, you would think, though, that the people of this world, after experiencing one terrible and even horrific judgment after another, they would come to a place of brokenness where they would surrender and turn their life over to the Lord to find forgiveness. But that's not the case. I mean, as we have talked about, there are going to be many who are going to come to Christ. The vast majority of the people of this world will not. And even though God has been judging them, His his judgment is not lack mercy. He's given them witnesses. He's given them other people to share the gospel while these judgments are being poured out. That at any time, if they would repent, they could escape what's coming, ultimately in hell. But, you know, they could become people of God. And yet people kept hard. It's like Pharaoh, right? God judged Egypt and Pharaoh hardened his heart. God judged Egypt again. Pharaoh hardened his heart. At one point, Pharaoh's heart became so committed to his rebellion, God hardened it for him. If a person keeps hardening their heart, hardening their heart, finally God says, fine, if that's what you want, I'll harden your heart all the more. If you won't give me glory willingly, I'll get glory from your life whether you like it or not. I want to get glory from you by you turning your life over to me and letting me use you and bless you. But if you refuse, if you continue to rebel, then I will use your life as an object lesson for everybody else to look at and go, man, you don't want to mess with God. Look at this guy. Look what he's going through. Hey, the way of the transgressor is hard. You know, woe unto those who strive with their maker. And God is trying to break these people, to bring them to Christ, 
Yet like Pharaoh, they keep hardening their hearts and hardening their hearts until finally they reach a point where their hearts are so hardened. And, and folks, let me say this. As I just said earlier, you know, God says, fine, if you, if you don't want to come to me, then you know what? I'll harden your heart all the more. And Paul talked about it in Second Thessalonians when he said they, they refused to come to the love of the truth that they might be saved. Therefore, God is going to send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, right? Talking about the people who follow the Antichrist. God will send them strong delusion. In the Old Testament, there was a king who was so bad and hardened his heart so much that God allowed a demon to come and harden his heart all the more and deceive him beyond, you know. And I think that's what's going to happen. The demons are just aching to get at people. God is restraining them in his mercy, trying to get them to come to the truth. They harden their hearts so much at one point, God says, fine, if that's what you want, have at them. And these demons are going to come, and it's going to be a demonic hardness and hatred for God that's going to compel them, listen, to a place where there's like a demonic insanity among these people. They're going to gather in the valley of Megiddo thinking they can actually go to war against God and win. Turn to Revelation 16, verse 14. In Revelation 16, verse 14, it says, For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. These people have so hardened their hearts to God, all hope is gone. There's no hope for them ever being saved. By the time they come together in the battle of Armageddon to fight against God, there is no more grace. The day of grace is over with for these people. Nobody gets saved because they've so hardened their hearts, they're past the point of no return. And of course, they're going to go to battle against God thinking they can win in a last-ditched effort to keep Christ from establishing His kingdom on the earth. But of course, they're going to fail and be utterly destroyed. Turn to Revelation 19. And in verse 19 we read, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's us. Jesus is the one sitting on the horse. We're we're following him as the armies of heaven. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. That would be Jesus Christ, of course. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That is the end for those people who think that they are the master of their fate. They are the captain of their soul. Well, verse 18 goes on. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Verse 18 is a little confusing, and it's thrown a lot of people. Let me try to tell you what I believe is going on here, okay? It is the view of many, including myself, that what is in view in verse 18 is the entire millennial kingdom from the return of Christ to reign all the way through the thousand years up to and including the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will be resurrected and stand before Jesus and be judged. This entire period of time is condensed into a single verse. Uh, When you're studying 
prophetic passages, this is very common. I'll give you a couple examples. Turn to John chapter 5. It's very common to condense a large period of time when you're talking about prophecy into a single verse or two. One example is John 5, verse 28 and 29, where Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's the rapture, those that are believers, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, folks, that takes place at least 1,007 years later at the great white throne judgment. So verse 28, or excuse me, first part of verse 29, talks about those who are resurrected to the resurrection of life. That's the rapture of the church. Well, you get the seven-year tribulation period after that and a thousand-year millennial kingdom before you come to the great white throne judgment. That's why I say that the beginning part of verse 29 and the latter part are separated by at least a thousand seven years. And yet they're all kind of squashed together in a single statement. Turn to Isaiah 61. And let's read verses 1 and 2, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.